and welcome to World Headlines Weekly, bringing you underreported headlines from around the world. This week, we start in the African country of Burkina Faso, where a military coup seized control of the country on Friday evening, elevating a 34-year-old captain in the army, Ibrahim Traore, to power. Reports claim that anti-terrorism special forces units within the military had grown increasingly frustrated with the previous administration's lack of progress against jihadist uprisings throughout the country. The last administration was led by Paul Henri Damiba, a different military leader who himself rose to power through a military coup earlier this year. On Sunday, religious and community leaders announced that Damiba had agreed to legally resign from his position after they mediated between him and Traoré. Damiba demanded seven guarantees in return, including that his allies would be protected, a guarantee for his security and rights, and that the new government would fulfill the promise he made to the economic community of West African states about restoring civilian rule in two years. While this has not been confirmed by other media outlets, the agreement would signal that a Damiba-led counter-coup would be extremely unlikely. As of Tuesday, Damiba's exact whereabouts remain unknown. Citizens of the country's capital, Ouagadougou, heard heavy gunfire early in the morning around the presidential palace. By nightfall, rebel soldiers commandeered the state television and radio broadcast to announce that they successfully took control of the country. On the broadcast, masked soldiers wielding assault rifles and heavy military gear claimed that, ostensibly, their sole responsibility was to restore security and integrity to the country. The coup plotters also announced that they have suspended the nation's constitution, dissolved the transitional legislative assembly used to steer the country since the earlier coup, and closed the country's borders. International leaders around the world have denounced the coup. African Union chief Musa Faki Maham claimed that the coup was, quote, an unconstitutional change of government and demanded that the military refrain from acts of violence or threats to civilians. The UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, issued similar calls for peace. Since Friday, rebel soldiers have patrolled the capital streets. Marketplaces, shops, and roads have slowly reopened since it seems increasingly unlikely that pro-Demiba forces will attempt a counter-coup. The coup only adds to the deep unrest brewing in West Africa, as Mali, Guinea, and Chad have each suffered coup attempts of their own since 2020. Burkina Faso has struggled to contain Islamist rebel groups within its borders for nearly a decade and has undergone three other coups, one earlier this year, one in 2015, and one in 1987. The country served as a colony of France until 1960, undergoing a series of coups and government transitions until Thomas Sankara, a captain in the military, took power in 1983. Sankara introduced a full-slate program of mass vaccination infrastructure improvements, women's rights expansion, agricultural reforms, and anti-desertification projects to the country. Sankara's reforms marked one of the largest socioeconomic restoration programs in Africa's history, and eventually expanded to include a nationwide literacy campaign, pro-peasant land reforms, and the outlawing of forced marriages throughout the country. Unfortunately, in 1987, Sankara was overthrown and assassinated by a former colleague, Blaise Kampaore, who went on to rule as dictator for 27 years from 1987 until 2014. While only minor evidence has emerged since, many Burkinabe believe that the French foreign ministry played a significant role in the coup and Sankara's assassination. 
In 2016, Burkina Faso's government called on France to declassify files related to Sankara's assassination, but France refused. Many of Sankara's reforms collapsed after the coup, and ever since, Burkina Faso has maintained one of the lowest standards of living in the world. Next, we head to an update in Brazil, where Sunday's election for president has led to a runoff, scheduled for October 30th. Neither major candidate cleared the 50% of the vote required to win the first round of elections outright, so Brazilians will head to the polls again later this month to vote for two major candidates, Lula and Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro, the far-right presidential incumbent, performed slightly better than expected, earning about 43.5% of the national vote. Lula's results just about met polling expectations, earning 48.4% of the vote. The real change came from the would-be voters of the centrist candidates, Tibet and Gomez. Both were projected to win about 7-8% of the vote each, but only won 4-3%. It's likely that many would-be centrists went for Bolsonaro at the last minute, recognizing that their preferred centrist candidates had no real chance of winning. The question going into the runoff is whether the rest of the centrist voters fall to the center-left Lula or far-right Bolsonaro. Overall, the first-round results are a victory for Brazil's far-right. Sunday's election also included races for Brazil's lower house, the Chamber of Deputies, and the Federal Senate, where right-wing and centrist candidates in alliance with Bolsonaro performed very well. They won around 60% of the seats in the lower house, building a strong majority that, even if Lula wins the runoff, will struggle to overcome. That said, Sunday's election was not all bad news for the left. Lula had strong performances in many districts that Bolsonaro easily carried in 2018, particularly in Paraná and Rio Grande do Sul, two southern states in Brazil. He also performed well where he needed to, posting a strong performance throughout northern and eastern regions of the country. Many Brazilians are fearful that the lead-up to the runoff could get violent. Following the pattern in other countries, far-right leaders in Brazil are prepared to call fraud on the runoff election if Lula wins. Bolsonaro has previously said that only God can remove him from power, and also said that, quote, There are only three alternatives for me. To be arrested, to be killed, or to be victorious. At a rally in June, he also encouraged his supporters to, quote, go to war if he loses. Last Wednesday, his party released a statement claiming that officials within the government have the absolute power to manipulate election results without leaving a trace. Should he lose the runoff, Bolsonaro could use his army of angry and sometimes violent supporters, or even the military and police, to attempt to seize power. Next, we head to Haiti, where protests that began in September have expanded as gas prices continue to rise. The government announced a nearly two-fold increase in prices last month, with further increases arriving over the weekend. As a result, thousands of protesters have blocked roads and marched outside of government buildings, demanding price relief for fuel. Increased prices have made cooking, electricity, and transportation increasingly unaffordable, leaving much of the country without proper means to cook, use electricity, or get to work. Protests have taken on a decidedly anti-imperialist tone, with many protesters aiming their frustration at the United States and the European Union. Transportation unions have led the charge, with Jacques Anderson Durow, president of the country's Trade Union Force to Save Haiti coalition, demanding that the government takes greater control over the country's oil imports. The coalition has also initiated a strike last week, paralyzing the country's economy and transportation system. So far, the government has not given in to demands.
Transportation unions and activists have sought to fix the problem at its source, the country's dependence on multinational oil corporations like Shell and ExxonMobil. Since 2018, Haiti has been forced to import oil from multinational corporations largely based in the United States after the U.S. sanctioned Venezuela's state-owned oil company, Haiti's previous oil provider. Under a trade deal called Petro-Caribe, Haiti received discounted oil from Venezuela through reduced prices and deferred payment, which allowed Haiti to pay nearly half of the upfront price of oil up to 25 years in the future. Under the terms of the deal, the Haitian government was supposed to use the money saved to fund critical social services and economic development. But in 2017, news broke that most of the saved funds from the program, nearly $2 billion in total, were missing. This scandal erupted at the same time the United States placed critical sanctions on Venezuela's oil company, causing the collapse of the trade deal. Gas prices in Haiti immediately rose up to 50% and have only increased ever since. Because of the U.S. sanctions on Venezuela and corruption in the Haitian government, high gas prices and fuel shortages have plagued Haiti for nearly four years. In Yemen, a country on the bottom tip of the Arabian Peninsula, a six-month ceasefire between Iran-backed Houthi rebels and a Saudi-led coalition expired on Sunday, leading to fears that a nearly decade-long civil war may resume. The United Nations brokered the original ceasefire in early April, with the UN Secretary General and the United States as key dealmakers between the sides. The ceasefire brought a much-needed break from the fighting, which, since 2014, has killed hundreds of thousands and plunged the nation into a deep humanitarian crisis. Malnutrition and disease are widespread, but the ceasefire allowed for some relief efforts by NGOs and the International Red Cross to begin. Millions of refugees have poured from the country since the war began, with many crossing the Bab al-Mandeb Strait from Yemen to Djibouti in Africa, and others crossing the land border to Oman. Public services have collapsed in the country, with many students dropping out of school, teachers quitting, and hospitals losing access to critical medication and technology as supply chains break down. While the fighting and the overall humanitarian crisis has cooled in 2022, UN officials worry that the expiration of the ceasefire could reverse this trend. The United States has received severe criticism from the UN and major human rights groups like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International for supporting the Saudi-led air campaign in the country. The United States began direct intelligence and logistical support for the Saudi-led coalition in 2015, with aerial radar support and refueling, munitions and arms sales, and Saudi pilot training. The United States is the top arms exporter on the planet, and a 2016 CNN report revealed that Saudi Arabia was its largest buyer from 2011 to 2015. Since then, the U.S. has sold tens of billions in arms to Saudi Arabia, with precision-guided bombs, Tomahawk missiles, and aircraft making up the bulk of the sales. The Trump administration dramatically expanded the partnership, which saw roughly $30 billion in arms sales to Saudi Arabia over the course of his presidency. Several U.S. House reps and senators have come out against the United States' support of Saudi Arabia. In 2017, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut, spoke on the Senate floor about the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, saying that, quote, it's caused, in part, by the actions of the United States of America. In April 2019, Trump vetoed a bipartisan bill that sought to stop U.S. backing for the Saudi-led military involvement. And, in February 2021, Joe Biden announced plans to end U.S. support for the Saudi war effort in Yemen. 
But nearly two years later, the partnership and arms sales to the Saudi government continues. Lastly, we head to Cuba, where LGBTQ activists scored a significant legal victory. Last week, Cubans voted overwhelmingly to approve gay marriage and adoption in a nationwide referendum, ratifying an updated national family code. Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel congratulated Cubans, explaining that justice had been delivered after years of discrimination. The new code ends discrimination against gay couples in marriage and adoption procedures and promotes equal sharing of domestic rights and responsibilities between men and women. Beyond this, it allows surrogacy births, protections for seniors' rights, stronger protection against domestic violence and expansion of the rights of children. Composed of 117 pages, 74% of the eligible voting population turned out to vote for the new code, and a supermajority of 66.8% voted to approve the new Families Code. Debate took place over the past few months, with many neighborhood, workplace, and mass organization meetings serving as debate sessions. The referendum follows on the heels of a new Cuban constitution, passed by a similarly overwhelming margin in 2019. Under Diaz-Canel, who was appointed president by the country's National Assembly in 2021, the government began a campaign to revise the National Family Code. Before the referendum, the code had not been updated since 1976, reflected an outdated and highly conservative view of social dynamics. Despite Cuba's left-wing economics, socially conservative ideas from the Catholic Church used to dominate the national consciousness. Many LGBTQ plus residents of the island were fired, imprisoned, and ostracized throughout the 1960s and 70s. Even in the late 90s and 2000s, most Cubans held strict, religious, socially conservative beliefs about marriage, women, and social relations overall. But since then, the Catholic Church has suffered a severe decline in influence as the internet has spread new ideas about social relations to the island. And those are your stories from around the world. I'll see you next week.